This week on Grape Encounters Radio. To me, I agree with you. Oh, you know, I don't. It doesn't I, taste right at all. That's why I said I'd rather drink less often and drink a better product than my daily, you know, have a drink wine. The extracts and stuff like that. I'm not going to buy a five ninety nine dollar bottle of wine. I don't need to drink that bad. <laughs> I'll <laughs> no, drink no. some beers. Peel me a grape, crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. And it is time for your weekly grape encounter. And this week we get to talk about something that we have not talked about in a very long time. And to cover this topic, I've brought somebody in who is a real expert on this subject. It's one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about who are wine lovers, a thing that they should talk about as wine lovers, and probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of winemaking. We're talking about what has wine lovers over a barrel or actually in a barrel. (laughs) We're going to talk about barrels and French barrels in particular today and oak barrels, of course. And with me today is Ryan Render. He's the director of sales in North America for Caduce of France, right? That's correct. Did I just say Caduce of France? Yeah, I would say Tenellerie Caduce, which means Cooper. Okay. Tenellerie Caduce of France. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, hey, great to have you on. I appreciate you having me on. You know, it's been a long time since I had anybody talk about barrels. In fact, I'm trying to think of the last person that I had on who did that. You know, I can't even remember. It's going to come to me in the middle of the discussion. It's going to come to me. But anyway, nice to have you on. Now you deal with wineries up and down the West Coast, mostly probably, but you've probably got clients in other parts of the country as well. Oh, definitely. You know, basically we're in Washington, Oregon, uh, all of California, Canada, both sides, Ontario, and also BC. I get to go around to wine taste wines with winemakers and help them evaluate how our barrels and other barrels are influencing. Oh, you uh, poor baby. What a, what a... <laughs> well, you know, when, when it's eight o'clock in the morning and you're drinking high acid Chardonnays in Oregon, uh, sometimes uh, you should cry for me. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's funny because people say that same thing to me because I drink a lot of wine, but too much wine, right? You <laughs> well, drink too, we too taste. Much. We yeah, taste. Yeah, we taste. And I do spit. You know, the longer I'm in the industry, the more I spit. Of course, yeah. And to. the better I get at spitting, by the way. Yeah. But I think people will say to me, you know, far too often they go, oh, you know, your life is so rough because you have to drink wine all the time. Well, you know, I, I get that a lot. My brother uh, is a school teacher and sometimes I'll text him about eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning when I'm doing that thing of tasting wines and white wines in particular in the morning in an area that's really known for high acidic wines. It's tough. You know, honestly, it is. You know, you really have to train your palate. You have to understand your spitting. I mean, I could taste up to 15, 20 different barrels at one winery and then I'm seeing five or six wineries a day, and it could be a lot. And you know what? You, you made a very interesting point. The acidic wines, those are the ones that are tough. Definitely. You know, those are the ones that need some food well, for you know, sure. to make it work. And when you're out tasting wine, you don't generally have a steak with you. No. <laughs> no. Although I, I, I'm thinking that the more I taste, uh, the more I think I'm going to have some good beef jerky there. There you go. Because that would help. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, when, when somebody says, oh, I've got some great food wines for you to taste, it's like, no, I don't want to taste. I don't want 
to taste food wines. I want a cocktail wine, please. Yeah, you know? give me a fifteen percent alcohol and up, please, <laughs> exactly. in the morning. That's that, that's what starts my day. All right, so you're out tasting wine, and people are looking to you to provide them with a barrel that's going to set this wine right. Yeah, definitely. You know, wine and barrels have a definite center district quality. I mean, you can have different flavors evolve in a barrel depending on where they come from, from uh, a certain forest or a certain type of oak, certain forest, certain toast levels, all have these different effects on wines. And winemakers generally will have an idea of where they want their wine to go and then watch it evolve. I get to taste with them and watch that wine evolve from basically in pre-malolactic, post-malolactic, and then aging as well. So as well, they're basically, they get to, I get to watch it evolve with them. I get to make the recommendations. And these are clients that I've had for a long time or new clients. So how do you go about doing that? Because this is a very subjective decision on your part, and you're playing a pretty major role in the winemaking process. I go about it in a couple different ways. One is I've either tried their wines before and kind of understand where they're coming from, or I get to learn about their wines with them. I know my barrels very well. I've been working for Caduce for about three years, but I've been in the business for about 14 of selling barrels. So I know how to evaluate our barrels very well. I know how, how they come around. I know how long it takes, and I can evaluate the kind of the markers that are there before they evolve into something else. So working with the winemaker, I can taste their wines and kind of evaluate and know where the barrel is going to go. And so we talk about that. Or if we haven't had any experience with them, I taste their wines and, and I ask them about their style, what they like, where the grapes come from, the clones. I go I go really deep into it. My viticulture background from Cal Poly kind of helped me out with that. So I basically get to understand what they're doing first and then help them evaluate what our barrels are going to do for them. And are they looking at you and saying, Ryan, we want this particular characteristic you know, to be prominent in the wine and then after that, this, this, and this and you know, some of that's going to come from the barrel and some of it's not and then you guide them according yeah, to that? Yeah, they'll, they'll show me different barrels too. They'll show me neutrals um, so wine that is in a barrel that they have in their cellar to show me their style, what they already have and then I'll ask them about what they're looking for. Are they looking for a little bit more structure? Are they looking for a little bit more toastiness? Are they looking for tannin? Basically, I get to help them figure out or they, they show me what, what they're trying to go for and they ask me about how Caduce is going to influence their wines. So everybody talks about the grapes. Everybody talks about the terroir. Everybody talks about the winemaker. But not a lot of people really talk about the barrel. We're dismissive about barrels. We say things like it's 40% new oak. And you'll hear that in a tasting room all mm-hmm. the time. So translate a, a phrase like that. Well, basically, the obviously, the percentage of new oak that's in a wine is, you know, if you say 50% oak, so you'd have one in neutral, one uh, in brand new oak. So you'd have 50% new. So basically the breakdown of percentage of new oak that's included in that wine. But it's based on a barrel having how many uses? Well, that's another thing. It's like, well, you know, I, I can use a barrel up to about five times with certain types of wine. You know, in white wines, you can use them a little bit more as far as getting extraction, whether you ferment them or not. Red wines generally extract a little quicker. The higher alcohol content to a wine, the faster the extraction is going to happen. So, you know, three to five times is basically in that new oak profile. Now, are we still calling it new oak on the second time and the third time? I think on the uh, second time people do, you know. Um, yeah. I, I also think people put new French oak or American oak or whatever you have on the label so that it shows that they're adding extra value to the wine. I think oak's got a, a bad name in, in the last probably 10 years just because of the overuse of it. I mean, I try to use in my own wines, or Rendario try to use the word balance. You know, you want the wines to be balanced and that includes oak, that includes aging, that includes everything that's done in the vineyard. Okay, now hold on a second, because you just said in your wines, and I hadn't even told anybody yet that you make wine. (laughs) I do, I do. Yeah, so there is a a label, it's Rendario, and uh, Ryan makes that. Ryan Render makes Rendario. That's that's Because you always wanted to be Italian or Spanish (laughs) or what? 
what? Rendario. Rendario, uh, is that Spanish? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a made-up Italian word. My, okay. I have an uh, Irish-German last name, and it was basically a conversation I had with uh, the great late uh, Dr. Keith Patterson one night. We had a couple glasses of wine, and he kind of spouted it off, and I said, that's going to be the name of my winery someday. Rendario. Rendario. Okay. So, I like it. Yeah. So you get to be the guinea pig for your own barrels. I do, and I stand on – I've worked for a couple different barrel companies in the last 14 years, three different ones. And so each time that I've worked for a different company, I use 100% of their oak exclusively on my wines, on my Chardonnay, on my Syrah, on my Grenache, my Cab, and my Merlot because I want my customers to understand that I'm using it and I'll stand on the products I sell them. Big question is this. Do you get a discount? I do get a discount, but not as big as I think I should. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I think I still owe my company some money from last harvest. So there are lots of different kinds of oak. You know, I mean, uh, prim- we- primarily, yeah. I mean, there's the French oak, American oak, uh, Eastern European. Um, and then we also have talked about before uh, previously uh, about alternatives. And, you know, French oak is kind of the top or the, the top echelon. It's the, you know, thousand dollars and up type of pricing. Uh, American oak sits you, about You mean for, for a barrel? For yeah. a barrel, yes. Yeah. So an American oak is how far behind that? Um, it's about $450. Yeah. So, I mean, almost cut it in half pretty much. Why is that? Uh, sourcing. Also, uh, American oak grows faster than uh, French oak does. It's grown here in the U.S., so there's not a large transportation cost, and it's not managed as well as it is in France. Now, I mean, oak trees take a while to grow, About right? 100 years. 100 years. Yeah. So how old are the trees that you're harvesting? 100 to 150 years 100 old. 100 to 150 years. Yep. Even here in the U.S.? No, in the U.S., they're right around 25 years. So they're ready at 25 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they grow faster. I mean, they're, you'll see the uh, growth rings on, on, on uh, American oak is a lot wider. There's more access to those forests, too, in the U.S., so they can go in and uh, buy private land, and you can um, harvest and make barrels there. So what do we like better? Now, obviously, you sell just French, right? For Caduce, I sell but just as French. But as a winemaker, I hear American and French almost evenly. American oak is decent oak, right? Even though it's quite a bit less expensive. It can be beautiful oak. I've used it on my Merlot in the past, and I, I, I love the, the attributes more of a little bit more coconut, a little bit more higher vanilla content. I love it on uh, for myself. I love it on Merlot, but there's a lot of great American oak out there. If you drink any bourbon, it's all 100% American oak. Okay. All right. Hey, listen, we're talking to Ryan Render. He's the director of sales for North America for Caduce. They make wine barrels in France, and they make some pretty spectacular barrels, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, they're up there, right? Yeah, in they're, terms def- of quality, they're definitely right? no, high quality. Okay. We've got all kinds of questions for you because people don't get the barrel thing. You know that. I'm, you here, go to, you, I'm here to help them. You go to parties and people go, I don't get the barrel thing. Oh, they say, oh, oak. Uh, I don't like wines with oak. And I said, yeah. then you don't like most wines. Yeah, that's because it's oak juice and <laughs> extract in there. That's why you don't like it. Yeah. All right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. In wine, there is truth and sulfites and occasionally a, a few insect parts. You learn something every day. On Grape Encounters Radio. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. And now, here's the guy who went from hipster to sipster, David Wilson. Right behind the rain. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. And you know, when somebody says they want some oaky wine, it does not mean that they want wine from Oklahoma. <laughs> they, want, 
they want wine with oak in it. You know, oak influences the final outcome of a wine just about as much as the grapes do. It's just as important. We only seem to talk about the grapes. Well, today we're talking to somebody who knows a lot about grapes and a lot about oak because he is the director of sales in North America for Caduce, and they are based in France. Yep, we're based in Bone, France. Bone, France. So just outside uh, outside of Bone, about 10 minutes, uh, Ladoire Sarny. I think I've massacred that name a million times, but we make about fourteen to 16,000 barrels a year, so it's relatively small in the, in the grand scheme of things. Bigger coopers make anywhere from fifty to 100 50,000 a year. Wow. And this is Ryan Render talking, by the way. <laughs> didn't even get a chance to say that. And Ryan makes wine as well. I do. You know, I've been making my own wine for Rendario Vineyards, which is my label uh, since 2003. Uh, I started off up in Sonoma, moved back down to Paso. I, I went to Cal Poly and studied there and started making wines uh, in 98 um, and moved around a little bit uh, during during college at Domain Alfred. That uh, actually worked for a handful of other little wineries and have never missed a harvest since then. And I buy his wines. <laughs> More importantly. Yeah, just started. And they're delicious. Thank you. I appreciate Crazy that. Crazy delicious. Yeah, you know the that, Chardonnay. Yeah, the Chardonnay is The great. Chardonnay is just like out of the park. I love it. You know, a great friend of mine, uh, Charlie Wagner up at Miracelet, allows me to pick fruit up there and make it into wine. And it's called Baja Ha. And it was uh, named after an adventure that him and I and his uh, cousins took in 2005 down to Mexico on our oh, really? motorcycles. Wow. Yeah. There's oh. a video made that only I have, I believe, at this point in time. And uh, it's all of our shenanigans that we pulled down there. Okay. So you have a personal relationship. For sure. No, uh, definitely. Other members of the Wagner family? Uh, Yeah. You know, I know Joe pretty well. Um, I I saw him last week. We're up at uh, Cook in uh, Napa, and he's doing great. You know, he sold his Mayomi brand, I think, for $316 million and has a – Come on. That's just crazy, right? That's 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 crazy. You know what? God bless him because that just sets the bar even higher. And now he has uh, Copper Cane Wine and Provisions, which is a handful of brands that he does from Napa – Oregon. He's picking up some brands down in Santa Barbara County as well. So he's on, he's on a great roll. And he's got a bunch of money in his pocket. <laughs> I, just, I heard that. I couldn't even believe that. You know, And there wasn't the tangible asset value there to justify no, there that. there wasn't a big winery. There wasn't anything. Nothing, right. I mean, it's like the Randall Graham approach. It's like the prisoner approach. You know, you build these brands up that have, have marketability. I mean, I think he went from 60,000 cases to 700,000 cases within a few years, which is uh, remarkable. Seemed to me like that all started with uh, Menage a Trois. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether they were the first to become the big brand where the name got so valuable mm-hmm. or, or not. But. I don't know when they sold. I know I remember when uh, Bonnie Dune sold, and that was that was the first one for me that was yeah. noticeable that it had nothing attached to it, no vineyards, no winery. Uh, it was just a brand. I'm hoping that somebody just buys me as a brand. <laughs> yeah, Rendario is always for sale, by the way. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> now, you shouldn't do. I'll well, take a little wine, bit less. Your wines are very good. Thank yeah, you. you know what? If they're gonna if you're gonna sell it, you need to stay attached to the wine. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. That's that's my passion. I love making wine. I love being in the community. I've been in the wine industry for about 18 years now. Um, you know, That's something I want to hand off to my kids. Once they get old enough, they've already done their, their first few harvests, and they're only three and five. So let's talk about the making of the oak barrel for a second, okay. because that's so interesting. Yeah. You, you know, know you how speak- do you get, you know, take some, you know, you make these wood staves. Well, it, start, it starts earlier than that. You know, it starts out with uh, with growing the timber, and that starts with the ONF, the French National Forestry Service, that that methodically handles and curates these wood, um, this forest. They go through. There's two different types of forest. There's taille and the utfute. Taille is basically private forest that you can buy wood off of, and then there's utfute, which is superior growth, which is managed by the ONF. 
ONF, the French National Forestry Service. So they'll go through every 10 years and reduce. It basically starts in like a thicket of trees, and they let them grow, get tall, and then they go through and, and, and systematically choose which trees are going to be cut, and then they allow them to grow bigger and bigger and wider and wider. Then the Forestry Service goes through, measures the trees, makes the evaluation of which one should be cut down. They cut them down, and then they go to a auction, and that's where competing companies can bid on the wood. Then they get them shipped to them. Then we cut them into uh, basically what are called bowls, which are larger pieces of wood, and then chop them into staves, uh, split them uh, into staves, and then hand saw them, and then create the staves. There's got to be a lot of waste, right? There is, actually. A lot of is. waste. But, you know, there's also uh, secondary um, services, pallets, uh, different wood um, companies, uh, furniture, veneer, a lot of different services. So, I mean, the tree doesn't get 100% used, but it does, uh, you know, it do- does come down to uh, basically you can use a lot of different things of the tree. Now, does any of it become oak chunks that are then put into sleeves and put in the barrel? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of defects in the wood. I mean, especially, I mean, think of what has happened in the last 100 years in Europe. Well, we've, we've had a few wars through there. So we'll find trees uh, from certain forests that actually have bullets in them that'll have, uh, you know, basically the, the trees were shot at a young age. And so the, you can see the bullets, you can see where the uh, it pierced it and wow. it killed it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. Uh, so at that point, they're turned into staves. And at staves, we basically aged them for about 30 months outside in what we call a chimney stack, which basically looks like Lincoln logs, uh, so that we can basically get rid of the harsher acids and allow nature to kind of take its course. So how does it work exactly? You create the staves first, Mm -hmm. okay? And then how do they put it together and keep it from leaking? I don't get it. (laughs) Well, oaks one of the. They should leak. Yeah, they should, you know, and there's no glue or, I mean, there's minimum nails, but I mean, you know, so basically from from the stave, they're they're routed, uh, or excuse me, they're jointed. um, After seasoning, they're jointed. And then basically pressure is all that keeps them together. I mean, wood, uh, oak is one of the, I think, four species of of wood that actually holds liquid. So that's one of the primarily primary uses of um, why we use oak is because it actually holds Corcus sessiflora as the main. Uh, species of oak that we use. Wow. Yeah. So how do you become a cooper? Okay. And how do you build the barrel? I mean, because I this is, I know an aside, but every time I look at a barrel, I just go, wow, that's pretty right. cool. How do they, I couldn't make that. Right. No, it's, it's, it's right. It, have you tried? Yeah, I have. I you have. have tried. I, I've tried. So when we give tours of the cooperage, uh, some of the coopers I've worked for, there's a stage called the rose and that's basically putting the first ring in, um, together with all the stages. So it's basically like a puzzle piece and you got to hold it really carefully and really strongly as you, as you move around. There's about 34 staves in the barrel. So you basically got to put it together all jointed so that when they're actually put together, they'll hold. But you got to get that first ring on, and that's that's the tough one. So basically, you got to put that on, and it's it takes a lot of skill and practice. You have to be an apprentice for, I believe, three years before you can actually become a cooper, and you have to do every single thing the old traditional way with old tools. You have to make your own barrel. At a, you have to put together your tools. You have to sharpen them every day. You have to build them. It's an apprenticeship. It's it's really an amazing uh, a talent and skill to have. Why can't we just mechanize it, you know? Mechanize you know, it, just run it through a machine. You know, it still takes that human touch, you know, that, that those first couple stages. I mean, a, a, a Cooper is a very skilled individual. It has been mechanized a lot, um, you know, some of the, the joining and also uh, the pressure in, in, in the making of the crows and the chime, which are parts of the barrel near the head, has been mechanized. But you still need that human touch for sure. Yeah. Amazing. All right. We're talking to Ryan Render. He is the director of sales in North America for Caduce, barrel makers in France and making amazing barrels. We're going to talk next about something that's going to make Ryan's skin crawl. Uh We're going to talk about all of the ways that winemakers fool us (laughs) into believing that 
real oak was used. Well, in some cases it is used, but that the wine that you're tasting was made in an oak barrel, aged in an oak barrel, when in reality, no such thing happened. And we'll do that next on Grape Encounters Radio. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and pleased to finally have a discussion about oak. It is something that we talk about very rarely on this show, and really should talk about all the time, because it's as important as the grapes, for sure. At least, that's what I believe, and I'm pretty sure my guest, Ryan Render, believes that as well. I do. Director of Sales for Caduce. Again, tell us about Caduce, French company. So uh, we're a French company that's uh, based in Bone, France. Uh, we manufacture uh, wine barrels over there. We source all of our wood from our uh, parent company, Canadel, also co-owned by one of the largest Burgundy producers, so uh, Maison Louis Jadot. So we're basically a uh, cooper that was created because Maison Louis Jadot wanted to t- do all their barrels in-house. Well, the barrels turned out so well that some of the neighbors wanted them, so we started selling them to our neighbors, and then we moved over here to the, the and 95. Now, do you think that you could go out, find the wood, and have a barrel made on your own now? I definitely could find that wood. You could yes. do it. I, yeah. could, I could do it. I, I've been over to All France right. min, uh, en- enough. I know en- enough people that are, if I wanted to do that, I don't I don't think I could raise up the money to be able to get that done, but it's uh, I definitely have the contacts. All right. So first question where Oak is concerned, something that is on probably almost every wine lovers mind when they think about oak what the heck happened with chardonnay abc you mean anything but chardonnay what happened to chardonnay it was a chardonnay was delicious then it got so oaky and then it went to no oak and now it seems like we have like three choices of chardonnays (laughs) is that about right i I think so i think it was the desperate housewife scenario basically you know people that wanted a, a wine that they could taste a lot of that gave them that sensation and I think it also was a lot of wines that were going heavy uh, into the malolactic for, uh, forum too. You have malolactic which creates that, that buttery component in wine and then you have oak. Well a lot of the oak was basically being amplified by that malolactic so you got buttery popcorn and oak and it was very obvious for people to taste so I think new wine drinkers were really liking it up until a point and then they reverted say five, six years ago they wanted anything that didn't have oak on it to be no oak you know all these different ones stainless steel for which I don't particularly care for. I like balance. And so if you look at some of the great wines, they're balanced wines. You know, they have oak in them because I think oak is, especially with Chardonnay, is really an important part of the production. And, and I don't really like unoaked Chardonnays. I think the medium oak Chardonnays are really the best. But, you know, we have this tendency in this country to make decisions based on the belief that if a little is good, a lot is better. Exactly. And that's not the case with the Chardonnay. No, I mean, Chardonnay is a beautiful, beautiful creature. I mean, I, I was, when I was over there in, in, in France, in, in Bone, probably about a decade ago, I was on that, I didn't like Chardonnay anymore kick. I was on the, I was one of those people that was like, there's too much oak, there's too much butter. Well, if you go over there, they actually use a lot of oak on their barrels, but you can't tell because the wines have such great acid, great components, great, uh, as you say, terroir. And so there's basically this 
this rejuvenation with me. So I came back and wanted to make Chardonnay. I, I can't make Burgundy-style Chardonnay in California. It just can't be done. But I make a wine that, for me, is a balanced wine. When a barrel's been used a couple of times, if you wanted to get the same impact from the oak that you would get the first time you used it, are you staying in the barrel longer? Is that the way it's done? You can. Um, you know, for me, I, I actually really enjoy the second fill to a barrel because barrels can be big and overwhelming at first. And then once they get that one-year seasoning from the wine, it seems to mellow down a little bit and really become uh, uh, really elegant and finessed. Okay. Explain toast. Toast levels. Okay. So, okay. so barrels, barrels get toasted. They get toasted over many different sources. You could have wood chips. You can have gas, electric. At Caduce, we do things very uh, traditionally. So they're over um, oak pellets that we've grinded up and made a, a fuel source out of. So we're reusing any extra products we're making into our fuel product. So toast levels, you start off with light. So that's probably about 60 minutes on the fire, 60, 70 minutes on the fire. And then you move up to there from medium, medium plus. We do a medium plus plus, and we do a heavy toast. As you increase your toast levels, you're basically cooking out, um, uh, you're cooking the sugar. So it's called the Maillard reaction. And so basically you're cooking the sugars inside the wood, the wood's grain to come out and to come to the surface. So you'll get less tannin and more uh, spice and more smoke as the barrels get toasted higher and higher. So what's the most popular barrel for winemakers? Um, you know, it, it, it really depends on the style of wine you're making. Um, here in Paso Robles, most, most um, winemakers enjoy medium plus. Where up in Oregon, you see a lot of mediums. In Washington, you see a lot of medium and medium plus. You know, it just depends on you're making Cabernet, you're making Pinot Noir, you're making a Chardonnay. So it really depends on what the winemaker is going for and the style of wine that they're creating. Yeah, gotcha. All right, let's talk about the fakes. The fakes. Uh, they're always trying to fake us out, Brian. <laughs> they are. And, you know, I know a winemaker who makes a Zinfandel that is absolutely delicious here in this region. And I happen to know that he uses neutral barrels. In other words, they've had all the flavor sucked out of them. But he puts a sleeve in the barrels mm -hmm. full of chopped up chunks of oak, mm -hmm. which because they're small pieces, they leach the flavor of the oak much more quickly than if he had just used the whole barrel. There's a lot of products out there. I think you're referring to what they call a daisy chain or a chain. You can put staves on the inside of a barrel. Uh, you can use uh, powders, chips, uh, beans, uh, dominoes. Basically, it's trying to mimic the flavor of oak, the vanilla, and the toastiness with it. The problem comes is when well, – what should say problem, but basically they're doing it because they're looking for a less expensive alternative to buying a four to $500 to $1,000 barrel but trying to get some of those flavors because their consumers may not know the difference. Most of the barrels that I sell, those wines that go into them are $25 and up. At a $20 price point, you basically start running out of the ability to turn a profit on your wines if you're using a higher-end product. But when I take a sleeve that has chunks of oak in it, I'm really doing the same thing, right? You're technically adding oak in there. I mean, you could technically take vanilla extract if you're so inclined illegally and put it inside your barrel and there's vanilla flavor. Um, what you really want to do is you want to give your, your wine a home and a host to, to basically evolve. Uh, the oak flavor from those chains and everything else, to me, it's very overt. You know, it's not refined. It's not elegant. It's not finessed. It's big and it's sweet. And to me, that's that's too much. So we've got the oak chunks. We've got 
oak extract. That's a really interesting one. Yeah, well, that's, that's it's taken basically from, we extract the juice from, I guess, pieces of oak, right? Yeah, you know, uh, you can get tannin, which they're extracting. Vanilla, you can get it you know, not only from wood, but from other right. sources and stuff like that. They're plant material. In Europe, they can do it a lot uh, more readily than we can here in the U.S. But, you know, these big wines that you like for 10 bucks, you know, I can guarantee that those don't see any barrel and they see a lot of other products going there. You probably have no idea what they are. I would rather buy a wine for a little bit more expensive, drink less often, and drink something that's made from... Uh, grapes, yeast, and barrels than anything else. So the tannin is basically coming from a sort of semi-fake source. Yeah. The flavor is we're faking it, basically. But maybe using natural products. Yeah, it's an, yeah. It's, it's an extract, as you said. So it's a, it's extracted flavor from just a, doesn't a taste. It doesn't taste right. To me, I agree with you. Oh, you know, I don't. It doesn't I, taste right at all. That's why I said I'd rather not. I'd rather rather drink less often and drink a better product made by someone who's actually taking the time to go into making a high quality product than my daily. You know, have a drink wine. Have you ever been fooled? Not that I know of. You know, <laughs> honestly, I mean, I go into that. I go in. I go. Hey, that tastes that tastes pretty good for what it is. I mean, for you know, fourteen bucks or for you know, nine ninety nine. I go. That's that's pretty solid. You know, I know that uh, you know a great local company, J. Lore, does a lot of alternatives, but they use a lot of barrels too. Uh, yeah. and, and their wines, you know, honestly, for for the price, are, are great. You know, I'm, I've, I've tasted them a bunch. Uh, the winemaking team is excellent. You know, and they've they've done a lot of great things in that area. And also the products themselves, those alternatives, they have gotten a lot better. When I first started uh, 14 years ago selling barrels, that it was pretty harsh. You know, now nowadays they've actually evolved into a lot better products. They're using better woods as, as far as the stave quality. Uh, the extracts and stuff like that, that's just – I'm not going to buy a $5.99 dollar bottle of wine. I just – I don't need to drink that bad. <laughs> I'll <laughs> no, drink no. some beers. All right. Well, very interesting stuff. If somebody is sitting in a tasting room and they're faced with the question of whether to buy the wine that was aged in American oak or French oak or – Hungarian oak. How do we decide? You're not going to decide. Just you're, taste the wine, you, right? You know, you, in, unless they're going to tell you, most likely you're going to have no idea if they used used barrels, American oak, French oak. Um, you can ask them, you know, but that's one of the things. And I think that's why the alternatives have, have, have gone up so much is that most consumers don't know, you know, yeah. and they honestly don't care. And so it's my job to kind of make sure the winemakers do care and that's what and, and to promote my products through the, through them because they're trying to make the best wine possible when you drink it you're drinking their expression all right that is going to do it thank you for appreciate now it. i really appreciate you coming hey, in had a great time yeah i had a great time having you here if somebody wanted more information is there a interesting website we could send yeah for to? uh, uh www.tonellerycaduce.com or just google uh, caduce cooperage so it's uh, Tonellery, which is T-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-R-I-E. Spell that. <laughs> Caduce is C-A-D-U-S dot com. Yep. That's it. Thank you. End of story. Ryan, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Can you, can you bring a barrel by here next time? <laughs> <laughs> that and some samples. Well, yeah, I was going to say with some of their Rendario wine in it. Yes, That'd be definitely. fantastic. Definitely. Let's do that. No, you've got that down, Pat. <laughs> which do you like more, making wine or making money selling barrels? I like making wine more. Okay, that's honesty. All right. Well, Caduce, I'm glad you're in France. <laughs> All right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You'll find Grape Encounters Radio located at the corner of fermented and demented. You do have a GPS, don't you? Yeah, wise guy, eh? 
She once described a wine as a dusty old trunk from the attic, and we were all glad she was doing the sipping. It's Sipping with Sarah with Sunset Magazine's Sarah Schneider on Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson. When you face with Grape Encounters Radio and in the studio now, the lovely Sarah Schneider. Today we're going to talk about something that you wanted to definitely get out there. It's a subject near and dear to my heart. I think that you're talking about wines by the glass in restaurants. And how it's changed. There have been a couple of real game changers in the past few years. There have been wines by the glass on most restaurant lists for a very long time, but it has been a crapshoot as to how good those wines are. Good meaning two things. Right. The quality of the wine in general and the condition of the wine. And the condition of the wine. How sound is it? Yeah. And that, that's because they are poured from bottles and you want a kind of rare wine that they have put by the glass. You might have been the only one to order a glass in the last three days. And that bottle was open three days ago and the staff really doesn't want to pour out two thirds of a bottle. So they serve it anyway. And the wine is oxidized. And I have friends working in the industry who have told me that that is way, way, way too often the case. Honestly, and I mean this sincerely, two out of three glasses of wine are tainted in some way that I have in the past ordered by the glass. The first thing that you want to do when you're in a restaurant is find out how often they're uncorking those bottles because chances are the more obscure the wine is that you order by the glass, the greater the chance that that wine has been in the bottle, maybe even two weeks. It happens. Yikes. And not everybody throws the wine away and even if they're using some kind of a preservation system like a vacuum vin or they're spraying argon gas like private preserve into the bottle, it still is only going to give that wine, if it's a red wine especially, three days is going to be max. And anything beyond that, the wine's done. So if you were in a high volume restaurant with lots of wine coming out to tables, right. you're better off. Yeah. If it's a small restaurant that's not selling a lot of wine, that wine is going to be in bad shape. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that when you get a tainted glass of wine and it's clearly turned and you send it back, they now have to open another bottle and you're going to get a fresh glass of wine from the bottle and you should not be afraid to send the wine back. So how would you um, describe oxidation character. so that people know when they're tasting something that's tainted? It's wine on its way to turning into vinegar. But wine can't turn to vinegar on its own. It needs vinegar mother. That is true. It just turns to a really badly oxidized product. Yeah. It's doing. It's going through the it's same process. It's going through the same process, but okay. it won't turn into a tasty yeah, it's not going to be, you thing. don't save it and try to put it on your salad later right. because you need the, the vinegar mother for that to happen. Okay, okay so sure. the solutions you were going to talk about. And that is the practice of wineries kegging their wine. That is sending it to a company like Free Flow Wines in Napa that puts it into stainless steel kegs and distributes it to restaurants to serve on tap. So wines on tap, I'm telling you, in much of the western part of the country and, and even the east coast, there's almost no new restaurants 
restaurant that opens that doesn't have a number of taps devoted to wine. And it allows them to pull a glass of wine, like you'd pull a beer, um, and some gas shoots in to cover the surface of that wine in the keg to keep so are the they oxygen using argon out. or nitrogen? What are they using? I think many of them are using argon. Yeah. Being, yeah. being the preferred gas, right. for sure. Yeah. Right. And if it's a wine that's meant to be drunk when it's fairly young and fresh, red or white, you will get a very sound, fresh glass of wine. And I am so for it. And, and by the way, if you are ordering wines that are served from a keg or even wines that are boxed these days, uh, so many of the really good wineries are doing this. Oh, they are. So just yeah. because it's on tap does not mean at all that it is a uh, low quality wine. Absolutely not. Even it's I, just I, the opposite. Actually, I know that true. you're based on the central California coast. There are a ton of wineries all around you that are kegging. Uh, just beautiful examples like Tablas Creek. Um, in Paso Robles is kegging a lot of their wines. Tangent down in Edna Valley with all of their alternative whites. You'll find their Albarino on tap, their Grenache Blanc. Another thing that's very interesting about all of this is that when a winery doesn't have to pay for bottling, labeling, corking, they're actually able to sell that wine for a lot mm-hmm. less money, which means that a glass of wine is going to cost a lot less money if it's coming out of a keg than if it's coming out of a bottle. And the other side that that warms my heart is that the carbon footprint of that wine just plummets. It's a fraction of what it would be if it got sent out in a bottle with all of that glass being shipped and having to be recycled or not. It's really environmentally sound way to drink your wine. Okay, so there are a couple of other things that are game changers as well. And the most important, I think, these days is the Coravin. I would agree with you there. You know, we advertise Coravin on this show, but not because of any other reason except that I really believe in this product. Everybody ought to have one. And every restaurant for sure should have one. Right. Because and many do. You, you don't have to throw away wine anymore. And what's really cool about it is that you are now able to sell really high-end wine by the glass. And a lot of people don't want to spend $150 to buy a bottle of wine because they don't want to take that risk. But for $25 for a glass of that wine, it's pure pleasure for them. And they get to try it without putting a bunch of money out there. Right. Even though that's a hefty price for a glass of wine, but it could be just a terrific discovery. So if you see some fairly expensive wines being served by the glass, you can probably know that they've got a Coravan back there, the, the device that sticks a needle through the cork without pulling the cork and, and pulls off a glass of wine, preserving the rest of the bottle. And you might just ask them. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. If you are in a place that is selling pricey wine by the glass, you need to know whether they're using some sort of an argon-based or nitrogen-based system, which is either going to be a Coravin or something like an Enomatic, which is a machine that dispenses wine from the bottles. And usually they hold like eight bottles and they add argon to the bottle as they subtract the wine from the bottle. And so the wine stays pretty pristine. But the machines are very expensive. I think they're something close to $20,000. Yikes. So a lot of places don't have them yet. And sooner or later, I think there'll be a probably uh, less expensive version. But I have two of them. Oh, yes. 
And at your wine bar. Yes, we do. And they Good to and know. I've never had to throw a drop of wine away that has been poured out of an enomatic. Good to know. So we have that and the Corvin. So just ask. If you're going to spend anything more than a few dollars for a glass of wine, you have every right to ask how the wine is kept and preserved because if all they're doing is just shoving the cork back in it, the wine is going to be tainted, probably. And if it is tainted, you should have no reservations about sending it back. Do it, and then they'll open a fresh bottle, and you're the winner. All right. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. Sarah Schneider from Sunset Magazine. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. <laughs>